We have two scripture readings this morning. The first is from the Old Testament book of Hosea, chapter 12, verses 3 through 6. The second is from Genesis, chapter 32. Hosea 12, 3 through 6 are a summary of Genesis 32. I am going to read Hosea 12, 3 through 6, and then we will study together Genesis 32. In the womb, Jacob took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us, the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. This is God's word. If there's one thing that Americans are pretty good at, it's solving problems. Americans are experts at solving problems. For instance, when there was a problem of automobile affordability, well, Henry Ford took care of that. It's called the assembly line. And what took 12 to 14 hours then took two hours. Just one car, that assembly line. Price of the car went down. People got jobs. And now we've got a parking lot full of cars. See? Uh, when there was a problem of light bulb longevity, well, Lewis Latimer fixed that. He invented the carbon filament. Edison's light bulbs used to only last a couple days, and then they'd burn out, and then you'd have to change them. <laughs> Lewis fixed that. Oh, and he also pioneered air conditioning. And we don't need that today. Six months from now, we'll thank him more. Oh, and then, you know, you want to talk to someone across the country, well, thank Alexander Graham Bell for that. Oh, and then what about the problem of home security? Marie Van Britten Brown solved that one. That's why you have your home security system that you have today. That's the patent right there. There it is. Oh, and what's that white round thing in the sky up in space? Huh. Well, let's go see it. We'll just build a rocket. We can do that. We're Americans. We solved that problem. And you go to Cape Canaveral today, and you have lunch underneath the massive engines of the mighty Saturn V. We made that happen. We put a flag up there on that moon. And one of the astronauts even brought a, a golf club along just to show it wasn't that hard. Yeah. Oh, and even in Apollo 13, you know, that aborted 
space flight to the moon when the service module exploded. Talk about having to solve a problem. The crew and uh, mission control, my goodness, they problem solved that disaster all the way back home. The lunar module became a lifeboat. NASA called it a successful failure. Oh, Americans know how to solve problems, don't we? Problem solving can produce spectacular results provided you know what the problem actually is. You see, sometimes the problem I see is not the problem God sees. Someone approaches you and they're struggling with anxiety. And something's wrong, they can't do a thing about it. Someone or something is causing them anxiety and they are there to tell you about it. And after about an hour, now two people have a problem. That's right. The first one thinks that someone else caused their anxiety and now you, you want to help you want to problem solve? You want to fix this? You, let's figure out a way out of your anxiety. Let's, let's fix this. Let's, and with all good faith, mind you, let's connect the riches of Christ to the reality of your situation. Let's alleviate that anxiety. See, that's what you see. They see something. You see something. But my question is, what does God see? What does God see? in my anxiety. How does God deal with someone in their anxiety? That's where Genesis chapter 32 teaches us today. Genesis 32, you'll find that on page 27 of your church Bibles. These verses speak of God's dealings with a man in utmost anxiety man by the name of Jacob, grandson to Abraham, father of the Hebrew people. Jacob was the son of Isaac. God had promised a great nation through this family. Jacob was the younger of twin boys. Jacob and his older twin brother, what? Esau. Jacob and Esau, that's right. Esau and Esau's red and hairy, not Jacob. Esau's a wild man. Jacob preferred the kitchen. They're just different. Jacob was born after Esau, and Scripture says his hand was reaching out, grasping Esau's heel. And so his name, Grasper, Deceiver. Deceiver, And that was his life. He deceived his brother Esau for a bowl of chili. He got the right of the firstborn. And he deceived his father. Who gave him an irrevocable blessing. And then he fled. He fled for fear of his life. To his uncle Laban. And Uncle Laban gave Jacob a dose of his own medicine, didn't he? 
And Jacob the deceiver was deceived and ended up with two wives instead of one. And, and then he had to work for Laban for 20 years. And despite Laban's deceptiveness, Jacob walked away with possessions and livestock and children. He was a very wealthy man. And this is where we see Jacob in chapter 32. In chapter 32 of Genesis, Jacob returns to the land of promise. But he has to face his brother Esau. How will Esau respond? Will he be friendly? Will he be hostile? Will Esau forgive him? Will Esau kill him? What's going to happen? It's the not knowing that brings the anxiety. And we're going to see how God treats Jacob in his anxiety. Now, beloved church, a passage like this is so meaningful. I think because sometimes the problem-solving approach to anxiety can lead to what I call, take two scriptures and call me in the morning. And to be clear, scripture is good. In scripture we hear God speak, but, but sometimes, you know, us pastors, we dispense it like we're drugstore pharmacist. You know, you drive up to the pharmacy window. What's your name? What's your address? Do you have any questions for the pastor pharmacist? No? Okay. Have a good day. Next. Here's a verse. Here's a book. Here's a podcast. You know, sometimes you just, you, you, you don't need three tips, four steps, five strategies. You don't need, sometimes you just need presence. Sometimes you just, sometimes you just need to let a scripture verse hold you. You need to know that God is near. And I believe that's what these verses do. I, I want you to let these verses hold you. So on his way home, God overwhelmed Jacob. God was trying to hold Jacob. Look at Genesis 32, verses 1 and 2. It says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. Notice it doesn't say that Jacob first saw them. It says that the angels met him. Met him, and then he saw them. And when he saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanam. Mahanam. Look at the footnote. The footnote says it means two camps. And this is a military term. So we're talking about two legions of angels that Jacob witnessed. God wanted Jacob to know that he was a protected man and that he was a man who mattered to him. So the idea of a bodyguard is for more than just protection, mind you. When you see an entourage around a, a VIP, what can you conclude? Oh, okay, that person is guarded, that person is secure, but oh, that person must be a somebody. And that's what's going on here. Angelic bodyguards are symbols of protection and status. Jacob is protected, and Jacob matters to God. And listen to me, this is, I believe, I believe this. I think this is true of us, too. I'm thinking of Psalm chapter 34, verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. I'm also thinking of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. 
are they, that is angels, not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those, that's us, to inherit salvation? So you see, in our anxiety, God wants his people to know their importance and he wants his people to feel their protection. Jacob is a part of God's plan to bless the nations through Christ. God cares for him. God will protect him. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus. He will not fail you. We know this. Does Jacob know this? Let's see. He approaches the land of promise, and there he sent messengers to Esau. Tell Esau, tell Esau where I've been, tell him what I have, and tell him what I want. That's verses 3 through 5. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. Notice the language here. My Lord, your servant, find favor. That's new language. Jacob is showing humility. This is good. Perhaps Esau has gotten over this. Let's see. Verse 6. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau. That's good. And he's coming to meet you. Yeah, that's good. And there are 400 men with him. And they weren't wearing orange shirts that said guest services. <laughs> what's, what's that? What's 400 men? That's a militia. They have weapons. Jacob has goats. Children. Wives. Houston, we have a problem. Verses 7 and 8, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Now, now how would you talk to someone like this? What would you do? Would you, would you, would you probe Jacob's catastrophizing what-ifs? Do you think that would help? What about take two verses and call me in the morning? No, I don't think so. J J Jacob is desperate. He's trying to figure out the best worst case scenario. I mean, if Esau attacks one half, the other half can run. And so, you know, I, I want to give my favored wife and children a chance. The others, well. I mean, he's calculating who gets to live and who gets to die. That's it. That's his best thinking here. In your anxious moments, have you ever found yourself mentally rehearsing the options, constructing the possible scenarios, playing chess to salvage the situation? You know, if they do this, if I do this, then they're going to do that. And if they do that, then I think I'm going to have to do this and, or that or that. I don't know. And finally, you're overwhelmed. God, 
please. And you begin to pray. That's where Jacob is in verses 9 through 12. And Jacob said, oh, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, oh, Lord, who said to me, return to your country, to your kindred, that I may do you good. I, I am not worthy of the least of all of the deeds of steadfast love and all of the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers, with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Now that's the prayer of a changed man. Jacob wants help. I fear him. That's what he said. This is progress. But he's not there yet. And here's what I mean. Remember the two angelic camps? Mahanaim of verses 1 and 2. Those two angelic camps of verses 1 and 2 now become two of Jacob's camps in verse 10. Well, wait a minute. Where did the angels go? They didn't go anywhere. But anxiety will do that, right? Anxiety will give you amnesia. Anxiety will make you forget God's promise. Anxiety will make you assume that God has left you and now you're on your own and it's up to you. One author calls this eternity amnesia. Eternity amnesia makes us forget who we are, where we live, and our ultimate destination with Christ. Eternity amnesia makes us think that the here and now is all you get. Eternity amnesia can give you unrealistic expectations about a broken world that will simply never be what you would like for it to be. Eternity amnesia, it can make you focus too much on yourself, ask too much of others, and display too little trust in the God who can do more than we can ask or imagine. Eternity amnesia, it can fill us with worry instead of gratitude, despair instead of joy, doubt instead of trust. And eternity amnesia can make us look for superficial solutions for deep spiritual problems. I think that's what's behind verses 13 to 15. So Jacob stayed there the night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. Could Jacob be overdoing it a bit? He's divesting himself in an attempt to garner favor. He's, I think he's trying to micromanage the situation. You know, when he asks this, I want you to say this. He says that to servants three times. Verse 21 says, so the present passed on ahead of him in three waves. And Jacob himself stayed 
that night in the camp. Verse 22, the same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. Now, how would you deal with a lonely man in the deepest pit of his most miserable anxiety the night before it all goes down? What would you do? What would you say? What would you say to Jacob? Would you suggest a quiet time? Would you, would you suggest scripture reading? Something serene and calming? Whatever your solution, I'm pretty sure, is not God's. Verse 24b, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Come again? What was that? What? Sometimes we just read through something and don't really process it. Let's process it. You know, it doesn't say, and a man came and comforted Jacob, or a man invited Jacob to the fireside room where they could have prayer in a few moments of time after the services. No. 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 A man, Yavak. Jacob. Yavak. To wrestle. To roll around in the dirt. To get muddy and bloody. We're not talking about Big Ten NCAA wrestling. We're talking about a cage match. We're talking about cheap shots and wrestling, grappling, and full Nelsons, and Jacob wrestling at the Jabbok. There's a wordplay going on here. Yaakov, Jacob. Yabak wrestled. At the Yabak, Jabak. See, it's nice. It's, this is nice style here. Jabak means emptied. Emptied. This wrestling match that happened, six minutes? <laughs> Jacob wished. No, Scripture says all, period, night, period, long, period. Any counselors here? I bet you've never done that with a client. Or maybe you have. And, and your client, every time your client starts to nod off, you just put him in a full Nelson. And, and let's not symbolize this, you know, by saying, well, they were wrestling in prayer. No, no, no. Colossians 4.12 specifically tells us that Paul's co-minister, Epaphras, is wrestling in prayer for you. That's not this. Jacob is not wrestling in prayer. He's wrestling and this stranger who appeared out of nowhere, out of nowhere, and did you get it? Did not speak the entire night long. Interrupted Jacob's quiet time, kept Jacob from his family and his sleep. I'm supposed to meet my brother the next day. You are keeping me awake. Leave me alone. Get off of me. The person won't say anything, but just puts him in another head, head full mouse and throws him to the ground again. They're rolling in the dirt and bloody and body slams, and, and this is going on and on. And can you imagine the emotions of Jacob? First, he's so, first 
first he's shocked, then he's like annoyed, and then he's kind of angry, and then it's like, hey, no, no, you're hurting me. Let go. The person won't let go. Stop that. And then he's kind of getting, now he's, I I can't flee. I'm going to have to fight. And so he's trying to get back some momentum. And this is going on all night long. Verse 25, at sunrise, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. What's that? Jacob prevailing? Really? Really? And just as the referee is about to slam his hand on the mat because the stranger, you know, has got his shoulders down, and just before that hand's about ready to go down, in a split second, that stranger extends his finger and touches Jacob's hip, and boing! It's over. Done. Clearly, this is no match between equals. This has been a contest between Jacob and an opponent who has been wrestling at Jacob's level all night long just to keep it going all night long. Could have ended in the first 10 seconds. No, this has been a deliberate, intentional, premeditated attempt to wear Jacob down and then to permanently cripple him. One touch, and the match was done. One touch, and Jacob would limp for the rest of his life. Who is this? Well, we're pretty sure it's not Jesus. I mean, Jesus touches people to heal them, not cripple them. Well, who is this? Well, we know who it is. That's why I read the scripture from Hosea. Jacob strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept. Do you get that? You get that? You get into, you get into a, a cage match. You get into a, a fight. You get into a rolling around, and, you just, and you're finally you're just weeping because you, you want this thing to end. And, and then finally, when you think you've got Control over this in one move. You're done. You're crippled. You're disabled. And then something else happens. Look at verse 26. The stranger says, let me go for the day has broken. And Jacob says, no. No. Not until you bless me. And of course, had the stranger wanted to, he could have freed himself. We know that. But Jacob realizes this is no man. He's been been wrestling with someone with far greater power. And someone who has the kind of power that Jacob needs. This this someone is Jacob's only hope. Look, it's, it's Esau plus 400 versus Jacob and his family. That's it. There's no outsmarting. This. There's no outwitting this. At the Jabbok, Jacob is emptied. The power that crippled him is the power that can sustain him. And so Jacob clutches that stranger like a drowning man holding on for his life. I'm exhausted. I am spent. I'm in crippling pain. You did this to me. I have no one else to turn to. I refuse to release my only hope. Bless me. 
The stranger asks in verse 27, well, what's your name? Jacob could have gone all night without that question. You had to ask. And now it's confession time. My name is Deceiver. My name is Cheater. My name is Swindler. I'm Jacob. There. My name is a cocktail of all my crimes. I'm thinking of the Apostle John who said if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that not good news? And the angel says, no, your name's not deceiver anymore. No more. No more. The old is gone. Behold, all things are new. Your name, Israel, for you have wrestled with God and have overcome. Except that he didn't, did he? He lost. He's in pain. He's limping. He has surrendered everything to God who is in control of all things. That's no victory. It's a defeat. And God says, no, that's a victory. That's winning. How? Grace. Think about it. God calls the moment that you surrender to him overcoming, being totally defeated so that you won't let go, emptied so that you can be filled. No, not filled, flooded. Flooded with his blessing. Don't you see? God saw a different problem than what Jacob saw. Jacob thought his problem was Esau. God sought to crush Jacob's sneaky self-sufficiency. He wanted Jacob's heart. He wanted Jacob to surrender so that he could give Jacob himself. And still Jacob is trying. He's he's. Slowly getting it, but he still has a more to go. That's why he says in verse 29, well, tell me your name. I told you my name. Tell me your name. And the angel says, no, not going not gonna to go there. Why, why do you want to know my name? What, so that you can summon my name like the Canaanite deities around you? No, that's not how it works with the one true God. No. But I will bless you. I will bless you. And the scripture says in verse 29, and there he blessed him. What if God really does want that for your life? That he really wants to bless you? In his book, Does God Really Like Me? Author Sid Holsclaw wrote these words. What if God is always glad to be with you? What if God is filled with joy because of you? What if God is always moving toward you and not just keeping his distance? What if God likes you so much that he truly enjoys being with you? What if God appreciates you so much that he wants to partner with you to accomplish all of his purposes in the world? That's what's going on here. That's the blessing. And that's why verse 30 says that Jacob named that place Peniel, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. 
It's ironic, isn't it? Because no one can see God's face and live. And yet, here is Jacob. In weakness and bankruptcy, Jacob sees God. And then the sun rose. And then he was limping. In his book, Leading with a Limp, Dan Allender wrote these words, To the degree you attempt to hide your weaknesses, the more you will need to control those you lead, the more insecure you will become, and the more rigidly you will impose yourself on your subordinates, prompting their ultimate departure, especially the best ones. The dark spiral of spin control inevitably leads to people's cynicism and mistrust. So do yourself and your organization a favor and don't go there. Prepare now to admit to your staff, to your family, to the church family, that you are the organization's chief sinner. Could the point of this passage be any clearer? In love, God uses our anxiety so that we will anxiously cling to Him. When people come, they want to be fixed. They want not to be anxious. So they pray as Jacob did. And it's easy to assume that our work is done. Jacob saw the problem was his brother. We see it as a problem of anxiety. God sees it as an opportunity to draw us to himself. And so in these verses, Jacob doesn't get fixed. He gets broken. And in his brokenness, he sees the face of God. And then he gets his place in the land of promise. Jacob's night will one day become a night for one of his descendants. His darkness will culminate in another darkness, one that took place from noon to three on the day we finally defeated God for good. That's how Chad Bird puts it in his piece called The Night We Defeated God. We wrestled him down in the mire of Jerusalem mud. We pinned him to the execution tree with flesh-piercing iron, sinners against the Savior, men against God, Jacob against Jesus, all of us against all of him. Is there another religion on earth with a God who loves his people so much that he loses to them that they might win in him? Is there another God like the God of Good Friday, Fighting Friday, the Friday that God shows us what he's really made of, fathomless mercy and limitless love? And in his loss is our victory. And he gives us a new name. We're no longer lying, cheating, deceiving Jacob. We are holy, righteous, innocent, forgiven, justified, sanctified children of God named Israel. Don't you see Genesis 32 is the gospel of the God who comes to man as man 
a sinner who fights with the Savior, a God who wills himself to be bested by his creatures. Creatures who are then, by grace through faith, renamed and re-blessed and redeemed in the victorious defeat of the God who is love. If you want to know the mercy of our God, look no further than this fight. This God gives up everything in order to give us everything. This God loses all that we might gain all. In Him, we see God face to face. And then, then we get to take our place in the land of promise. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen.